Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to become a paid member or check out all our free stuff. Um... Or find out what's in the forbidden closet of mystery. Um, um, actually, you know, I had this idea that I was going to start today's podcast by saying, greetings, dear listeners. Wow, welcome to the Remnant Podcast. This is Michael Barbero from The Daily. Because <laughs> the guy whispers like some creepy dude who comes up to you in the library and has something to, like, tell you, but he doesn't want, you know, like the security guard to hear you say it. And I was listening to it this morning. It was freaking me out. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, today's episode isn't brought to you by anybody creepy. It's brought to you by our friends at CarShield. All right. So um, we have today um, uh, a returning guest. I think the second, maybe third? Second time. And I have to confess, like, this is like one step closer to my ultimate goal of being like uh, a charter member of the Five Timers Club. Like, I. Yeah, well, you know what? I want to be. That'll take some work. Well, right, but I mean, I'm setting goals. I want to be with Steyerwalt and Lincecum and Williamson. I, I, I want to get access to the archives and the a smoking jacket someday. Yeah, no, and, I, and you know, at four you learn the handshake. So, um, okay. oh, I should probably ask you uh, tell people who you are. This is Andy Smerrick. <laughs> he is uh, last time he was on, he was from R Street, um, and uh, now he has migrated to the uh, Manhattan Institute. Another fine. Uh, think Tank, uh, based out of New York. And uh, um, what's your portfolio? First of all, congratulations on the new gig. Thank and you. congratulations to R Street for unloading you. Uh, for and, sure. Uh, Everyone wins. So, uh, what, uh, what is your same portfolio? Yeah. As, uh, am I? Yeah, so um, in no particular order, principles of American conservative governing uh, civil society, uh, mediating institutions, localism, and then about a third of my time really focused on the nuts and bolts of education, skills development, so K-12, higher ed policy. But uh, I'm really interested in thinking about how we get these policy principles right so we can, we as conservatives, uh, can govern better in the years to come. Um, of course, getting, you know, policy principles right in the current age is, 
kind of like trying to get the true faith of, of Baal um, several centuries into the uh, uh, the rule of Christianity. I mean, <laughs> being a being a nuts and bolts uh, minutiae policy wonk in this day and age really is sort of the lost faith of the old of the before times. Yeah, like right? you and I probably just would have assumed, say, five, seven, certainly ten years ago, that to be a conservative when it comes to the courts is to believe in originalism and textualism. Well, now some people think that that's not right or to believe in localism and federalism. Well, some people are now into nationalism. We used to believe in markets across the board. Now there's something much more like um, kind of a status planning. Uncle Sam can figure things out. So yeah, across the board, there are a whole bunch of domains that I thought were more locked in that are up for grabs. A little bit depressing, but it gives room for folks like you and me to um, try to think some of this stuff out. Yeah, so look, I um, I don't mind stuff being up for grabs, but I mean, it's a distinction that I, I think needs to be clarified a little bit, and that conservatives should want a whole bunch of issues to be up for grabs, hmm. right? I mean, like the Democrats should not. I mean, I think this is something that you've dedicated a big chunk of your professional life to. The Democrats should not have a monopoly on education, mm-hmm. right? You know, Democrats should not have a monopoly on healthcare, all sorts of things. Republicans shouldn't necessarily have a monopoly on taxes or law and order and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I got no problem with the idea of political issues being up for grabs between the two sides. That's how you get good policy innovation is when, you know, one party or one side starts to steal an issue from another side. What's depressing is that intra-conservatism or intra-conservatives, you would have thought that like markets, limited government, federalism, all that stuff would be sort of settled dogma and it would be ways about taking that stuff and applying it to these issues that were up for grabs rather than saying the dogma is now up for grabs. That's right. And I try to give myself a little bit of peace of mind here by saying, listen, what um, Eisenhower was saying in 52 was different than what Nixon was saying when he ran in 60. And that's different than what Goldwater was saying in 64 and Reagan was different in 80. There is always a little bit of play in the joints in some of this stuff. And we should be open to that. Like, when do we support community as opposed to liberty? When do we support markets as opposed to uh, tradition and custom and longstanding institutions? All of these things are interesting and conservatives are more about practice and prudence than a strict ideology. But when uh, people question some of these just fundamentals, like, do we believe in localism and pluralism anymore? That seems to be a, a different order of question. And I know you've been in a debate with Patrick Deneen about, do we st- still believe in liberalism? I mean, I didn't see that coming five years ago. Yeah, so it's weird. I mean, let's talk about that for a little bit. And so pe- people who understand, let me level set a little bit for listeners, because we we were kind of jabbering each other before we started recording. Um, I'm in Fairbanks, Alaska. I am wildly sleep deprived. I would totally tell my Iraqi captors where um, the our base was right now because I am so off my uh, body clock. And um, my plane did not arrive in Fairbanks until uh, 4 a.m. D.C. time. And I didn't get to the hotel until 5 a.m. Um, but we completely got through the, the you know, sort of like Swiss border, border circa 1943 covid um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, uh, cordon sanitaire um, outside Fairbanks, and um, so I'm just a little groggy. And Andy is supposed to like keep me from uh, starting to sound like 
Joe Biden without his coffee. Um, <laughs> but what were we talking about? Oh, so Michael Michael Deneen. Um, he Patrick Deneen. Patrick Deneen. Sorry. Um, uh, I feel like what was that episode of The Simpsons where Homer says at the dinner table, "Pass food, scoop <laughs> food with," and Marge says, "You mean a spoon, homie?" <laughs> um, so anyway. Uh, um, uh, Patrick Deneen and I, they, 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 they called it a debate. It's not really a debate. It's like dueling essays. I still haven't read his essay yet, but, um, there's this weird thing going on where you have Donald Trump going to Mount Rushmore, right? Going to the mall, whatever, talking about how we will defend the American tradition. They have, you know, uh, I think Rich, my friend and former colleague Rich Lowry takes it too far and it's calling, and so does Newt Gingrich and Tucker Carlson and all these guys saying that the Rushmore speech was the greatest speech, you know, right. certainly the greatest speech Trump ever gave, which, you know, does get perilously close to the orbit of best gas station sushi in Alabama. Right. But let's just sort of stipulate that it was the best Trump speech. Let's even stipulate that it was a good speech. There's a lot of it, and I would certainly defend the tracks with my book and all of the rest, of, all that kind of stuff. But there's this really weird disconnect in that you have all of these nationalist types, um, uh, and I use the word nationalist advisedly with asterisks flying around, um, uh, who are passionately defending Trump for defending the principles of the founding, the principles of America, the principles of the West, blah, 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 and talking about how the BLM crowd and the the iconoclasts want to tear it all down and they hate the, the principles of the founding, the principles that this country is based on. And yet people like Pat Deneen, who I personally get along with just fine, and I think is a really smart guy, um, they're making the exact same arguments as the guys tearing down statues. I shouldn't say exact same, but they're attacking the principles of the founding. They're attacking the the the, the ideas that this country was, was based upon. Um, but they're doing it in a more rarefied way. And, you know, and I, I think Patrick won conservative book of the year from ISI. Right. And I'm friends with those guys. And, you know, I like ISI. I just did something for them. But I don't understand how someone could talk about, you know, taking a sledgehammer to the entire fusionist project upon which things like that were founded. And I don't understand. There's this weird contradiction of saying Donald Trump is a hero. He's the Joan of Arc of American conservatism for pr defending the principles of the founding. Oh, and here's this great argument from people like Patrick Deneen and Adrian Vermeule that said this entire country got off, took a wrong turn 500 or 250 years ago when we started believing all of these ideas that gave birth to this country. Do you have a way to square these things other than partisanship? No, uh, apart from saying that what I didn't appreciate five years ago is that there was this line of thinking that we shouldn't necessarily draw the the line of progression of American intellectual history or even like political activity from the Declaration of Independence, that there there were these group of people who wanted to bypass Locke and uh, yeah, take a look more at um, English common law and some things that date back even further. And then it went even further than that, that these folks actually seem to be pretty darn hostile to the idea of liberalism and pluralism and so, I mean, to give them their credit, like Adrian Vermeule's arguments, um, and I can't tell how tongue-in-cheek or how serious, how satirical his piece in The Atlantic was about uh, a different way of thinking about conservative governing. I mean, it called people um, subjects and 
was pretty uh, down on the idea of people deciding for themselves what is right or some of these things like free speech. Uh, like, is that a serious argument? Uh, uh, Bamari kind of going at it with your colleague David French about whether or not uh, democratic liberalism actually needs to have a whole lot of space for people to do things with which we disagree. And I guess it does hinge on how much agreement there is among us that there is something about the combination of freedom, liberty, uh, uh, distributed power in government, uh, localism, federalism, a way to think about setting the prerequisites of governing, and that leads to the ability to do do conservatism. And I always thought that people on the right just agreed that, like Hayek would say, well, if you get freedom, ultimately you're going to get tradition and you're going to get customs and you're going to get markets experience flowing out of liberty leads to a set of um, customs and traditions and so on. Uh, there are people now who just see that differently, almost as though in order to get these kind of traditional institutions and ways of life that we need to bypass liberalism. And I'm not there. They certainly are making me think about this. But this is a, a line of thought that, like I said, didn't see coming, but I also didn't realize how many, at least vocal adherents it would get. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I, I, I'm a... I've written a lot because it's such, I mean, and partly just pandering to the just obscene market demand for such things. I've written a lot about fusionism, <laughs> but, uh, um, and, you know, I did the new forward to the, the what is conservatism book by ISI, which is like the federal's papers of fusionism. Yeah. And, um, with the exception of like L Brent Bozell, I can never get it straight because there are three of them. There's the media research guy now who looks like young Chris Kringle. And then there's his dad. And then there was his grandfather. And they're all Brent Bozell's. But the, the Brent Bozell Sr. was the brother-in-law of William F. Buckley. Um, with the exception of him and a handful of people around him who basically were the Sora Bamaris of the 1970s and the late 1960s and early 1970s and tried to create this ultramontane Catholic sort of splinter thing under the magazine Triumph and all the rest. Um, everybody else who participated in the fusion debates, to one extent or another, except for the ones who decided to take them out of it, themselves out of it entirely, like the hardcore libertarian types, they never, you know, they always said, look, you know, I, you know, there was always this sort of you know, with the exception of Meyer himself, the argument was always the arguments always boiled down to not that liberty wasn't important, um, but that order is getting short shrift, and we need to put some more emphasis on order. Or um, not that order isn't important, but we're not paying enough attention to liberty, right? And there was this argument about where to draw lines, and that's one of the things I always loved about intellectual conservatism is that they acknowledged their dogma and they just basically argued about where these trade offs were at any given contextual or prudential moment. That is not the argument that 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 Patrick and these guys are making. I mean, they're literally making the, you know, none of the, none of the federal guys were like all in, lock the founding, <laughs> the Declaration, were just wrong. They're based on a bad um, uh, metaphysic, right? They're based on 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 bad philosophy, and really, society took a terrible turn five hundred years ago. And that argument is, you know, with the exception maybe of Bozell, and I'm not even sure it's fair to Bozell, that hasn't existed. I mean, people used to have this attitude, okay, so yeah, Harry Jaff is going a little too far, you know, um, 
but beyond that, it was this, you know, trying to find a happy medium between two important principles. Uh, if you take, you know, you say you don't know whether to believe Vermeil um, on the merits, you know, it's not like I'm in the practice of quoting Maya Angelou, but um, if someone tells you who they are, believe them, right? You know, I mean, there was no like little ca Swiftian caveat in his um, Atlantic, Atlantic piece, and he hasn't since said, I can't believe all you people were taking me seriously or anything. Um, so take them seriously. Well, there were a couple things. I, I saw a blog post that he wrote subsequent to it that uh, at least gave the impression that he, at least some number of his arguments, he was being satirical. For example, he was trying to make the point that if you switch out his arguments, just a couple words with things that um, a number of very progressive legal scholars were saying 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, they would be identical. Um, that he is simply making the case that you can read into, if it's okay for the progressives to read into a bunch of our laws and statutes, their preferences. Uh, they've created a process that the right could co-opt and just read our view or the right's view of natural law or what it means. Okay, to so I, 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 I missed that blog post. But so is your is your contention that he doesn't want to do that or that I, he was just tweaking people by saying, hey, look, if you keep doing this, we're going to do this? Uh I don't know. And that's why I think that this debate has been so interesting that uh, I'm left with these questions about um, I think his argument ultimately, or at least one of his arguments, is that if we the process, like, for example, of textualism and originalism may ultimately lead down this path to outcomes that we do not like. Um, and if it is the case that the left has generally agreed that you can, with a certain theory of uh, interpreting statutes, regulations, constitutions, you can read a bunch of things into there to get to a more just society. Why can't you swap out one vision of a just society for another um, and have it be equally legitimate? And so this has made me think much more. For example, uh, I think there are a number of folks who said, well, look, if um, Gorsuch's opinion in Bostock was based on textualism of uh, the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act, and a bunch of folks didn't like it, conservatives didn't like it, do we have to rethink um, textualism? I mean, that's a live question. And like, I don't want to be in a position of trying to get inside of any other author's head on this, um, so they should be able to speak for themselves. But I'll at least say this, that it made me question a bunch of these different debates on um, the processes that we've been relying on and uh, whether or not like liberalism will always, as some people say, lead to progressive outcomes or what I think Ryan Anderson would argue more like on the religious freedom thing. We've been arguing so much about process that uh, a number of folks on the right have not been arguing about the content of religious freedom or some other issues, which I think is another good issue. I mean, all of this is to be said, like these debates didn't exist in the same way 10 years ago. No, that's right. Um, I just think they're just very, I mean, sort of getting to my point is that in a perfect world, I would be really happy, in a perfect world, we're, we're not there. Um, on Earth 2, I would be really psyched to have an argument about a lot of this stuff. What I just find sort of fascinating is how this weird coalition is formed between uh, eggheads who want to question the fundamental principles of the American founding, which conservatism has, uh, has appointed itself the defender of, 
for my entire life and probably, you know, uh, a good while before that. Um, and um, a president that they defend explicitly on the grounds that he is defending these principles that um, people are calling into question. I mean, there's just this weird cognitive dissonance, it seems to me, to have a, this, some of the same people praising the Mount Rushmore speech also saying, you know, we really got to rethink the fundamental principles that this country was founded on. I mean, it's almost as if you don't, if, as long as you don't paint or chant Black Lives Matter or tear down statues, you can be just as aggressive intellectually about the founding principles of our country. I don't understand. I mean, I think, Pat, let me put it this way. Patrick Dean is a far more intellectually rigorous and serious person, and I'm not trying to disparage him, than the authors of the 1619 Project. Um, but it, I am at a loss as a defender of the principles of the American founding and of, of uh, what I call the Lockean Revolution and all that kind of stuff. I am at a loss as to why conservatives should be so angry at the 1619 people hmm. and not angry at all, but celebratory of the sort of liberalism has failed project. You see what I'm getting at there? No, I do. And I think the question is, how do you draw this through line of uh, what are the, the building blocks of the American system? Must it include the Declaration of Independence and uh, the Locke's views of like natural rights and liberty, and at least as they have evolved over time? Or do you draw it back to this other different kind of tradition in England that... Uh, far predated the Declaration of Independence. Um, and you have a different view, even going back to Aristotle, about natural rights and virtue and so on. I mean, and that's what, this is what I've been struggling with, is I used to think that we knew what we meant when we talked about the American founding, this combination of Locke, the Declaration of Independence, uh, Montesquieu, and what was put in the uh, Federalist Papers and what ended up in the Constitution. I, I took that for granted, but there are questions about that now. Um. So listeners may be surprised to know that right before we started recording, I said to Andy, let's start with talking about opening up schools. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was our, uh, you know, our little throat clearing um, before we got to the issue that probably more people are interested in at the moment. Um, so it's a strange, it, it, to me, it's a very strange political debate. I think it's it's very hard for me to understand how you can talk about how masks need to be a state by state issue, but um, education needs to be the question of reopening schools needs to come from the government in Washington and from the president, and um, uh, and the passion with which people are um, well, I shouldn't say that. I actually understand the passion. People want the schools reopened. Anyway, before I gild the lily or or trap you in a cul-de-sac or say words that make sense. Um, what do you, uh, where do you come down on this whole school reopening thing? Well, uh, it is going to be messy and it is going to be decentralized. And we actually have a pretty darn good system for figuring that out. We have 14,000-ish uh, school districts, 100,000 uh, different schools. And because of the conditions in Montana are different than they are in Illinois, and they're different in different parts of New York State and different parts of Florida, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to try to uh, have a national answer on these things. We can provide national data, maybe national suggestions, but what I think we're going to see is 
once districts start to roll out their final determinations on this, and many of them have not yet. So that's going to happen in some cases by July 30th or by August 1 or August 15th. I think we are going to see just a remarkable uh, set of like different policies on buses, on cleaning schools, on split schedules. And it's going to be these 14,000 school districts uh, working with their teachers and as collective bargaining agreements and their families to figure out what makes sense. And even though there is an impulse in Washington, D.C. to get everything open immediately, there's enough data we have now um, from enough families saying that they're still very leery of sending their kids back to school full time, that no matter what kind of national pronouncement, families are going to ultimately make the final decision on that. If if they feel like schools aren't going to be safe, they're not going to send their kids to school. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I, I, it seems to me the, the way people talk about this gets gets so many things wrong. I personally would not have a huge problem with sending if my kid went to boarding school. Sending my kid, you know, I mean, just given the date of what we know about some, you know, a a seventeen year old girl without many comorbidities um, or really any, that she'd probably be fine, right? But her going to school every day, coming back, and potentially giving me or my wife COVID, that's a huge problem, you know? And, and there are lots of parents out there who my my assumption is, is that they're it's less that they're concerned about the, the safety of their own kids. It's that they're concerned that, oh my gosh, what happens if, you know, even if I don't die, what happens if my kid comes home and gives me or my wife or my husband or my grandparents, whatever, COVID, you know, we can't afford that right now. And... You know, it's also the issue of like the teachers and all these kinds of things. And I just at the at the national level, I just find it particularly from the administration, there's something really platitudinous about it. It is like we just we must open the schools. The schools must reopen um, as if saying that does something that solves something um, where it really it's just purely rhetorical. Right. And there are probably political reasons for doing some of that stuff. Uh but I mean, the survey data on this actually surprised me. So there are a couple of different surveys that have come out on this. Um, it's like half of parents today are still nervous about sending their kids to summer activities uh, that are uh, close proximity, kids uh, with one another. Um, only it's like 27% of families feel comfortable right now seeing kids go back to school. I think it's full time in August or September. Um, like a fifth of families are at least considering choosing a different school or homeschooling come the fall. Um, AEI had a survey that showed it's something like 80% of moms and 70% of dads are uncomfortable right now sending their kids to either school or daycare. Um, and, you know, there's this evidence about increased mental health problems, about increased anxiety and depression. Um, real families trying to work through all this stuff, they are. Uh, they're trying to deal with their lives as is right now, and they're going to make very pragmatic, very prudent decisions and a national order that we got to get back to school on time, full time might sound good, but you could throw a party and no one could come to that. There's a whole lot of families who are just not interested. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because getting, I mean, we're not, I promise we're not going to drag it back into um, attacks on the founding and liberal democratic capitalism and everything. But there is this, again, just this funny disconnect between 
that that intellectual project from Tucker on and the argument that's coming from the administration. Basically, the argument from the administration is, in some respects, sort of exactly what a vulgar Marxist would think it would be, which is that all of our various public policies must be um, reverse engineered so as to make sure that the market economy functions maximally and that the stock market and the other statistics look good for Donald Trump's re-election. I mean, that's at least the gist of the reporting and the scuttlebutt from people I know who talk to the administration is, is that, you know, Trump really is resentful that he couldn't talk about, he can't talk about the economy the way he wanted to. And he now understands that you can't have the economy coming back if something like 50% of parents can't work, or 50% of workers can't work if their kids aren't going to school. And so this whole, the whole thing is about the schools must reopen so that we can get people back to work. Even the response to the pandemic, to a certain extent, um, after Trump decided it was a losing issue for him because he couldn't do the press conferences, has been, we have to pretend the pandemic is over to get the economy back open. And the problem is, is that all of these things, you can't open schools, you can't get the economy back going, you can't keep get people to vote properly the way you want. You can't do any of those things unless you deal with the pandemic. And that's the one thing that, that Trump just doesn't really want to do. And so all of these arguments are just, it, it, there's this scene in the episode of MASH, which I love, uh, I don't love MASH, but I've always loved this scene where um, Hawkeye and um, I think it's Trapper John are trying to defuse an unexploded uh, artillery shell that lands in the middle of the camp. And uh, Radar has got the, the megaphone and he's reading the instructions. And um, and Radar is like, okay, remove the casing. And they remove the casing. And they do this, do that, blah, blah, blah. And at one point, Radar then says, next, cut the blue wire. And so they take these very tight surgical scissors and they cut the blue wire. And then Radar reads the next line in the instructions that says, but first, <laughs> cut the green wire. <laughs> so much of what we're talking about is like, you know, but first cut the green wire. Like if, if we had dealt with the pandemic, the school openings would be much easier. If we had dealt with the pandemic, the economy stuff would be much easier. The voting in person stuff would be much easier. But you can't skip the step. It's like a math problem where you have to do the work in the sequence that they need you to do the work in. And I just don't understand how... I mean, there's a problem when you have one in what we have 25% of all global debt reported deaths from COVID, you know, that's, so you get that under control, flaunt air travel, tourism, none of the other stuff is going to work. That's right. Uh, uh, so many things have rippled from that early decision. And I, I assume it wasn't well-reasoned. It was just the president deciding um, that he could talk um, us into optimism and say this thing was going to go away. And I mean, if we live in a different universe with a different president, he or she may have decided in December to build task force and think about what are all of the contingencies and how do we deal with it. Um, and if A happens, what are our options? Or if B happens, what are our options? It, that just didn't happen. And so I think this thing got ahead of us. And when it did, then that set off all these other kind of activities, like uh, states felt like they were behind the eight ball and they had to act rashly and schools had to shut down. And we've been trying to catch up ever since then. 
but you're right. Unless we cannot bully COVID, we cannot like out alpha COVID. It is going to be what it is. And until we manage it the right way, the economy isn't going to behave the way that we want to. Schools aren't going to get back the way um, they need to. Um, I mean, if we go back in time, Hindsight's 2020, but maybe we could have managed this in a different way. Um, but here we are. I mean, had you told me that when things started shutting down in early March, that you and I would be talking in what mid July and the opening of schools in September would still be gravely in doubt, I would have said, yeah, that's really unlikely. There will be like the federal government will figure out how to give enough guidance and decentralize this thing enough that we'll, we'll be in much better shape by then. And that hasn't happened. Um, so, but part of your background is you, you were, you were government wonk, right? Correct. Um, I'm currently, yeah, yeah uh, seven government jobs now. And, um, and, you know, every now and then you want to break my food bowl by saying that more and more pundits should have government experience. And, you know, I'll just, <laughs> I'll, I'll just let that go. Um, well said. uh, but, uh, um, if you were going to design, like, I personally think it, if we were really creative, right. And you had cooperate, you had buy-in from unions and, and school boards and parent teacher associations and all the rest, people would get really creative. Correct. I haven't seen a lot of exa- examples of creativity. Right. And like, I think you could do, you know, those you know, they're not, they're not closed tents, but they're sort of canopies that you do outside. Mm-hmm. You could come up with all sorts of things in the places where climate is permitted, permits it to do schooling outdoors mm-hmm. where you have classes. You know, I mean, like I remember in college, we like, can we have class outside today? You know, I mean, as long as the weather is permitting, it's a big chunks of the south, the southwest. Um, you could call kids back in early. Um, you know, take away their August, but tell them, hey, look, you're going to get like all of December off instead, right? Or all of February off and just get really creative about how you do this stuff and do outdoor classes with social distancing and all that kind of stuff. And it's been a frustration of mine that I I haven't seen a lot of outside of the box thinking in all of this. We talk a big game about localism and federalism and all that, but, you know, where is the creativity in all this? I think there's a bunch, and this is actually what gives me hope on this. Um, a couple months ago, you had a guest on. I'm trying to remember if it was Lyman Stone or someone else who made the case that the nations that did the best job early on responding to COVID weren't necessarily authoritarian or democratic or rich or poor. They are those that just made a decision to be as free as humanly possible with information. And this mm-hmm. is the high that, was, that, that was Lyman, yeah, yeah. So. And that resonated with me, which is when you live in a nation as big and as diverse as ours, where uh, the conditions are going to be so different based on COVID, there's no way from a central location you can figure all this stuff out. So what you do, especially in America, is you provide information and Americans are going to figure stuff out um, in their families, in their communities, in their local school districts, in their state governments. And I wish we had taken this mindset earlier on that there's not going to be a uniform national plan on this. There are going to be tens of thousands of plans on this. And the federal government's job is to provide as much actionable, um, reliable, verifiable information as possible. So once that ultimately happened, and I think it happened too slowly, then you started 
seeing colleges and universities behave differently, and you're seeing these school districts behave differently. And once these school districts ultimately make their plans and school begins in September, we are going to see so many different approaches to this. Um, like New York City that has over a thousand schools is going to have a plan that is going to look very different than the average school district that has six or seven schools or one that has three schools in a rural area. They're going to make different decisions about buses and food services and how often to clean the school and split schedules and whether to do things in the summer. And no one knows exactly what is right, but that is the way that you get uh, you approximate as many right decisions as possible because what's right in Pittsburgh will be different than in Philadelphia and Phoenix and Poughkeepsie and so on. And so much of this happens below the radar screen. Um, the New York Times or Washington Post can't send reporters out to all 14,000 school districts. But what is happening right now are districts are coming up with plans and they are vetting them with their teachers, their collective bargaining agreements, and then they're having public meetings and families are weighing in. And the diversity of programs, not only at like T1, say September 1, but the diversity on September 15th as uh, districts make course corrections or October 15th or November 15th. All of these different places, as long as they're given degrees of freedom, are going to make different decisions. And I think make really interesting, clever decisions. And ultimately, I think we will start to coalesce around a handful of different approaches. So for example, there are some districts and colleges that are thinking about doing what's called bubbling. Um, you get a group of students and teachers or professors, so at the college level, 20, 25, 30 students who are going to live in a dorm together and go to all of their classes together and have the same set of professors. I wouldn't have thought of that necessarily, but that's one heck of a way, especially if you have a small university, to make sure that you can um, limit the amount of spread and have students do things in person. There are some colleges that are thinking about having in-person classes that are small, but any big lecture hall is going to automatically be online. Or a lot of universities are thinking about shutting down their semesters early, like come uh, Thanksgiving and maybe doing everything else after that online. And one of the cool things about this is K-12 has been behind higher ed on some of this, only because higher ed got out earlier years ago on like online learning. So there are about 20 million students who are in post-secondary education, so undergrad and grad, and a third of them take at least one online course. Uh, a sixth of them are in fully online courses. So colleges and universities have at least been beta testing and figuring out how to do some of this stuff in a way that K-12 has not. Um, and so colleges are going to be ahead of the curve on this thing. Um, and K-12 is catching up. But to your point about like lack of innovation, no, no, I think we're seeing a bunch of it. It's just quiet. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Um, I it bums me out that we're not seeing more about it. I mean, I guess in the planning stage, what are you going to put a camera on, right? Because you're just people planning. But, right. um, but um, you know, it occurred to me, like at my kid's school, what you could do is something similar to what you're talking about, this bubbling thing, which I didn't know was catching on, but I've been thinking for a while. Instead of having, you know, what, five to seven classes a day, you know, English, first period, math, second period, do all day one math, you know, one, you know, one class. And then the next day, do all day one class. And so no one's in the hallways. Everyone's together. Um, you figure out a way to do the distancing and keep everybody together. Because the whole idea is about limiting spread. It's really not about guaranteeing against infection. Um, 
And that would do a huge, you know, part of it. I mean, just getting rid of the cafeteria and stuff would, you know, do a big chunk of it. But I just look around and, you know, I remember early on in the pandemic, the, I want to say it was Estonia, but it might have been Finland. And my apologies to both. For all I know, like the worst thing you can tell Estonian is that you think they were Finnish or vice versa. But um, one of those sort of Baltic countries was basically just declared just did, basically did eminent domain of like public squares mm-hmm. and like these great big European cities, they have these great places and they just gave lots to restaurants and <laughs> said, this is yours. Do it with you will, you know, um, same thing with retail. Cause they learn once they knew that outside was safer than inside, there's just all sorts of sort of animal spirit, Hayekian ground up improv- improvisations you can do. Yep. Bethesda back home, you know, and, and, and has closed down a bunch of streets to let the restaurants move outside. Um, I just expected, I was kind of hoping because I, I love that sort of American, let's just figure it out kind of thing. I just wish we were seeing more of it. And maybe there's a media bias issue here where the press wants to make it seem as if the only way to fight this is from Donald Trump. And since he's not doing that, they're not going to show positive, you know, responses to it. But I did feel like I would have heard about more of that kind of stuff. It's a it's a good point. And I guess my impulse is that there's more of that stuff going on. Some of it has probably been co-opted by the national politics and people fighting about whether or not a mask is a good thing or not. But I at least know in like my community where I live in kind of rural Maryland that life is going on and people are figuring out when you go to a soccer practice, you know, you take all the kids um, temperature beforehand and you have them social distance and parents are still talking, but they're wearing masks apart from one another. And uh, there are certain outdoor cafes that can function in different ways. Uh, People are making do and being creative about this. Uh, So going back to K-12 for a second, prior to COVID, it's something like 20% of schools we're offering some kind of online programming, only one in five. And this was higher at that high school level, of course. But then overnight, essentially, the school system was told, you got to figure out how to do virtually all of your education online. Good luck. So it took some time, but month after month after month, more schools and districts were figuring out how do we have the bandwidth? How do we get the devices? And by the end of the school year, it still wasn't great, but it's like 86% of districts were using some sort of asynchronous online, like digital learning, about half of them were doing something synchronous, meaning real time. Um, And granted, like this AEI report said that only maybe 20% were uh, of these programs were were rigorous. Uh, The rest were something less than that. But from call it uh, mid-March until mid-May, America's 14,000 school districts went from thinking everything was fine, they were going to go about their 150-year history of brick-and-mortar in-class schools, to being able to deliver something that only one in five schools were doing anything like before. And you cannot direct that from Washington, D.C. So I'm not saying all these schools are perfect, but man, we had 100,000 schools, if not change on a dime, um, do some pretty innovative things. Not perfect, but uh, you, this wasn't like, you know, a Soviet five-year plan where Moscow tells everybody what to do and they just sort of do lockstep. No, people started figuring stuff out in some pretty innovative ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of have, I mean, that's, again, it's good to hear and I hope you're right. Um, I was going to, you know, I went to a, the first drive-in movie I've been to and since I was a little kid. 
um, the other day. And when I was sitting there, it occurred to me, you know, it would have to work for certain communities where either people could do it as equivalent of carpooling or um, maybe for colleges where kids have cars or can borrow cars or whatever. But you could rent out some of these drive-in places and use them. You know, everyone's socially distanced in a car. Yep. Um, and or even have pairs in cars, you know, small groups. And, you know, professors could do a presentation on the screen or teachers could do a presentation on the screen and then maybe walk around from car to car like at a, a drive-up, you know, like a waiter or waitress at a, at a drive through restaurant and, you know, check on how everyone's doing. Um, but one thing, if you did that, that almost everybody would need is car shield. Computer systems and cars are the new normal. From electronically controlled transmissions to touchscreen displays to dozens of sensors. But you can't fix any of these new features yourself. So when, not if, but when something breaks, it could cost a fortune. And now is not the time for expensive repairs. And that's why you should get CarShield. CarShield has affordable protection plans that can save you thousands for a covered repair, including computers, GPS, electronics, and more. The people at CarShield understand that payment flexibility is an absolute must. Monthly plans can be customized to your needs with rates as low as $99 a month. No long-term contracts or commitments. CarShield gives you options others won't. You get to choose your favorite mechanic or dealership to do the work, and CarShield takes care of the rest. They also offer complimentary 24-7 roadside assistance and a rental car while yours is being fixed. CarShield has helped over 1 million customers. So drive with confidence knowing you got coverage from America's number one auto protection company. So for as low as $99 a month, you can protect yourself from surprises and save thousands for a covered repair. Call 800-CAR-6000 and mention promo code DINGO or visit carshield.com and use the code DINGO to save 10%. That's carshield.com. Promo code DINGO. A deductible may apply. So, I mean, so staying on education for a second, um, two questions. One, just sort of staying on the, the COVID stuff. Um, you spent a lot of time, like, actually understanding education from the ground level, right, and all that, and it's one of the things you study most. Um, you know, President Trump said recently that that maybe some of these school districts are keeping schools closed to hurt Trump in the election. It seems to me that if there is an issue out there that the old proposition that all politics is local is still true, it is freaking education. And as much as I am sure lots of parents and local politicians and liberal suburban districts would love to stick it to Donald Trump and all of that kind of stuff, and they're not above perverting public policy to that end, the idea that you are going to play those kinds of games when you've got parents who want to tear your head off That's so right. you can get these kids out of their house just strikes me as wildly implausible. You know, what, what do you think about all that? Right. So I'd add one element. So it is absolutely true that there are some people who believe never um, 
always take advantage of a crisis. And there's some people who always want more money for schools. And so they will use this as an opportunity to um, get schools open and get 50 billion, $75 billion running through our schools again. So no doubt there are some political things going on by different interest groups that are separate from let's just get schools up and running. So I don't want to downplay that. That's a thing that has always been a thing. Let's recognize it. But yeah, the idea that we have tens of millions, literally tens of millions of families that are trying to figure out their lives and work and sports schedules and how to do homeschooling. And that there would be some politicians who think that it is in their best interest to manipulate that, to maybe try to have the right kind of outcome in November. Uh, it just seems implausible given that. I mean, ultimately, good policy makes good politics. Um, you do not want to be seen as a local actor who was trying to scheme to keep schools closed to the detriment of your families just so a national election could go one way or the other. So obviously, political people do political things, but uh, certainly at the local level. And school board members are almost always elected locally, and superintendents of schools are almost w always well-known within their communities. They are hearing from families, they're hearing from their collective bargaining agreement, uh, collective bargaining units, they're hearing from their local newspapers. They are just trying to solve this thing. And when you have so many different school districts trying to just get this thing right, I mean, there are, uh, again, these surveys tell us that teachers in general they're worried about their health, but they're also worried that their students have um, had a bunch of learning losses. There's this one there's this one estimate that because of COVID, students are going to enter their next grade in reading, having uh, not learned about a third of what they would have otherwise, and in math, maybe up to a half of it. That doesn't serve anybody well, including teachers. Um, uh, a bunch of teachers are worried about the uh, mental health of their of their kids. Good people are trying to get this thing right. And yeah, politics is going to be in the air. But all of the elected officials that I know, especially these school board folks, they think in terms of kids and what is best and right for like uh, their health and safety and their families. And I certainly give them the benefit of the doubt with the caveat. Yes, national advocacy groups are going to be looking for more money and they may want to play some games to get a vote go the right way. But um, I think that is the the sub subplot, not the B plot. Um, yeah, I remember I, back in, I want to say, uh, late March, early April, I would talk to a pretty successful pediatrician in Florida and she was telling me how difficult all of this stuff was because the, the ability to do the other medicine that little kids need or kids need was being short shrifted because of all the COVID concerns. And then she was telling me how, you know, for a lot of kids, it's those last couple months of the school year where the school decides whether you need to be left back, whether you need some sort of extra remedial special education stuff. Um, uh, and because the COVID thing happened so quickly, she was saying a lot of schools are just basically saying, just punting all of the decisions and socially promoting everybody and saying, you know, just we'll deal with all of this next year. And so I could see there being a long lag time of those kinds of problems in the pipeline um, uh, for a long time to come. But uh, anyway, you can say what you want about that. But I, I do want to get one last question in on the school choice stuff. Um, 
before we switch gears, um, uh, it seems like, you know, particularly with Diane Ravitch, you know, there's a, a, a legitimate and good faith sort of, and then uh, we were supposed to have Tom Sowell on here last week. He couldn't come. Um, uh, who's got this big book about charter schools where he talks about how, what a great success they are and all that. And I know charter schools aren't necessarily the exact same thing as school choice, but, you know, it's complicated, yada, yada, yada. Um, um, where do you, as someone who actually looks at all this, where, where, what is the current state of the debate on, on school choice, charter schools? Are we moving ahead? Are we moving behind? Does New York, because it's so much bigger than everything else, skew our perception of the whole thing? You know, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Well, very optimistic if you take the long view of this. So just to do level setting, prior to 1990, virtually every single um, public school in America, you could say certain things about them. It was run by a local school district, which was a local monopoly, an exclusive territorial franchise, and kids were assigned to that school based on their home address. That's how we developed a system of public education, and that is very different than most other Western nations, but it's what we did. So then vouchers came around in 90, 91, 92, charter schools came around, and then eventually we had scholarship programs and what are called education savings accounts and tax, tuition tax credit programs. And then we had contracting where nonprofits can run schools within districts. So what had been for a century, our understanding of public education as a, um, a uh, one corporation town, the local school board owned and operated everything, today it is entirely different. Families can use public money or access public money or public money can follow them to go to an array of schools, often charter schools, nonprofit run public schools, or use tax credits or ESAs or vouchers to go to an array of different private schools. And uh, we now take for granted that pluralism has a major role to play in the delivery of K-12 education in a way that 30 years ago was absolutely inconceivable. So now there are legitimate questions about how far this can go and whether school choice is right for a densely populated area in the same way that it is for a remote rural area or who gets to oversee these schools or what are, is the extent to which public money should be used for a faith-based school um, as opposed to a secular charter school. Lots of questions on all these things, but we have a couple million kids prior to COVID who were being homeschooled, several million kids who were in charter schools. Um, it's always been about 10% of kids who are in private schools um, dating back several decades, and more and more of them are doing so with some kind of public money. Uh, when I was coming up in this business in the mid-1990s, we had a voucher program in Cleveland and D.C. No one had any idea that uh, a couple decades later there would be something like 60, 65, 70 private school choice programs um, in various states, and that Florida would have a handful of them, and that the Supreme Court would ultimately decide this year in Espinoza that like Blaine amendments can't stop private schools that are religious from participating in these programs. So yeah, there are all these micro fights, and they seem to take up our attention. But if you were to show today's K-12 landscape to someone who just um, came from 1985, they would think that it was impossible. They wouldn't even recognize it. How much choice, how much diversity, uh, how much differentiation, the new ways of accountability, the new funding streams, it's really a success story. All right, so with all that in mind, and I, I completely take you at your word that that's, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear it. Um, one of my standing 
gripes, not about school choice, which I'm generally in favor of, and, and I mean generally I'm in favor of. Um, I think some criticisms have validity, but I think in the spirit of subsidiarity and experimentation, most of the complaints about all of it are best dealt with locally in, in a particular rather than as the sweeping general, but that's neither here nor there. Um, for years, every conservative event I've gone, not everyone, but all, a lot of conservative events, whenever school choice came up or whenever it didn't come up, somebody from the audience would bring it up and talk about how the way to fix this political correctness problem, the way to fix this, you know, um, indoctrination in our schools is school choice. And I get that argument. I think there are some sincerely legitimate examples of how that argument is true in specific particular cases. At the same time, most of the people in the audience, when those comments are made and everyone applauds and all the rest, you know, certainly at the college level, but even at the public school level to a, or the, the K through 12 level, had school choice to the extent that certainly, certainly they could move to a neighborhood that had better schools um, and still send their kids to public schools. But a lot of them sent their kids to private schools. I, you know, because we only have one kid, we can afford in, to send our daughter to a private school. And, um, but all of the private schools I am aware of, with maybe the exception of one Catholic school in the D.C. area, um, the political correct indoctrination stuff is as bad or worse than in any public school. And... Um, the, you know, the stuff that we're seeing right now with the top statue topplings and all of these kinds of things, uh, for a, a lot of grumpy conservatives like me, you look at the stuff and, or you hear people say, you know, education's gotten worse. They don't understand their own history. They've been taught to hate this country. They've been taught to think that race and slavery explains everything when it actually, it's some more complicated thing, yada, yada, yada. We don't need to go back through all those arguments. Um, as an error... And, and so there's saying that the education has gotten worse during an era where, as you just explained, the arc of school choice has been improving dramatically. So the, the quality of the stuff that the average kid believes or young person believes has been going down while the level of choice has been going up. And it just it seems to me that this is a very Irving Christolian Joseph Schumpeter point to make, which is that. It's important to fix the institutions and it's important to fix the incentives, but the real problem is the ideas. And we, um, we have let education schools and the education bureaucracy both that feeds both public and private institutions believe in some really terrible things about this country. Mm -hmm. And that's what they've taught these kids and that, that's what these kids have imbibed. And what is your response to that? Okay. All right. So... I think I'm more optimistic about the state of political correctness in not only public schools, but certainly in private schools. There are absolutely cases where a lot of the things that we worry about has infiltrated some of these schools. Kids are being taught stuff that, let's just say, it is a different way of understanding civics and history than probably you and I would like. There is some of that. I don't think it is as widespread. Um, so I want to concede that point. But I also want to make this point that I alluded to earlier, which is like the Ryan Anderson argument um, that sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, but some of us on the right who have believed in process 
um, we can be so fixated on getting systems and architecture right, we can forget then to use that, those new systems of freedom and liberty and choice um, to engage in them to make sure that those systems are also populated by people who are using this new freedom to do the things that we want. So it, in other words, it is one thing to say, let's have a wider array of public schools. It's something similar to say, let's have a wider array of private schools to which kids um, can have access. Th those are process questions. What are the means by which kids access schools? Uh, a separate question is, what are we, those of us who believe in the American founding or certain ways of thinking about history, what are we doing to actually create schools or sit on the boards of those schools or teach in schools to make sure that good things happen? So that process has certainly led to a proliferation of what we call high-performing, high-poverty charter schools. Um, there is this growing group of what are called classical education charter schools that are really hearkening back to like a great books program, almost like a St. John's thing. So that's happening. And that's popping up as are micro schools, which often kind of have this classical education thing to them. But I guess my overarching point is you can have a diversified system of education, but if nobody wants to start schools that reflect the full diversity of America, including like a conservative sense of what history, ought, how it ought to be taught or morals or prudence or virtue, whatever, well, then that process is just going to lead to the same kinds of schools. So like this is a as much a criticism of myself. I spend so much time thinking about process and systems engineering. Sometimes, you know, it's just time to go out there and sit on the board of a school and make sure that it's doing the right thing for 200 kids. Yeah, so I mean, the reason why I said, again, that's all good to hear, um, you know, and while it may seem like it, we actually do not have an editorial policy of banning optimism on this podcast. <laughs> um, but... Um, I remember one of my big gripes going now for longer than our intern who's watching this has been alive has been um, uh, there's been this fetishization on the right of creating new institutions. Um, and one of the first pieces I ever got published was um, for the Wall Street Journal in like 1996 or something like that. Um, complaining about how this, this fad of, um, you know, you know, it, it harkens back to like a Gro Grover Norquist used to do this stuff. We don't need to, we don't need anything to do with the people who built the Leviathan state and blah, 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 blah. We're going to, we have our own culture now. And you had young people wearing fedoras and you had people talking about how look at Hillsdale. We need more Hillsdales. Um, you had, um, um, the Weekly Standard wrote it ran some pieces that I really didn't like about how we need to have our own movie studios, our own news networks, our own this, our own that, right? And um, and and Irving's response back then, I remember this because I was a little policy gnome at the time, and I got to listen to a lot of these conversations. Was who are you going to hire to work in these places? Not run these places, to work in these places, and. Um, if you look at, say, Fox News, um, someplace I know a good deal about, and I had this conversation with, with Roger Ailes himself, and he was aware of it as an issue, and maybe it's changed in the last few years because of the polarization and all the rest, but, you know, for a long time, for most of Fox News' existence, once you got past the on-air talent and the executive producers, 
the the regression to the mean of just journalism school graduate accelerated quite quickly. And so you just had people who were, you know, they wanted to be in journalism and they were, and people who want to be in journalism tend to be liberal. I, my uh, partner in crime, Steve Hayes, talks about how there were only two conservatives in his class at Columbia Journalism School. Hmm. And, um, and one of the other one went to go work at ESPN or something. And, um, and so this, I guess the point I'm trying to get at is that part of what Irving, you know, who was deeply enmeshed or, or, or saturated in, in Schumpeterian arguments about the new class was that, um, when you talk about creating these alternative institutions, you're talking about drawing upon a reserve army of intellectually and ideologically simpatico foot soldiers that do not exist because the mainstream institutions do not produce them. And the people who are ideologically simpatico, just not because of some grand conspiracy or anything, but there's just a nat there's a selection bias problem. As my dad used to say, normal, my dad was in journalism his entire life. And he always used to say, I spent, you know, 40, 50 years working behind enemy lines. Hmm. Um, the most people who are interested in going into journalism have, um, uh, you know, the, the, um, what is it that Tom Sowell calls it? The, there's the closed vision and the open vision or unconstrained vision, right? Um, they, I'm not saying they're bad people at all. Almost the opposite. They are imbued with this idea of missionary work that says, if I can get the truth out there to the world, we will make this a better place. People who are wired that way tend to want to be teachers, want to be journalists, want to be social workers. They want to be activists of some, of some kind. And as my dad used to say, in a non-pejorative way, say, normal people <laughs> want to go into business so they can raise, you know, make enough money to raise kids the way they want to live and not have a nice house. And that is a normal thing. And, um, and so I, I, this is a long-winded, sleep-deprived way of getting at this sort of much bigger underlying problem that um, the, 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 the pipeline of talented people who see the world basically the way that we see it, about education, about all of these kinds of things, there are lots of people who agree with us, but they don't necessarily want to go into the professions that will fix the problems that we're talking about. Yeah. So now you probably have a hint of why I sometimes subtly and sometimes unsubtly write about civic virtue and the um, benefits of government service and why I created uh, a fellowship program for mid-career um, people in public service who want to learn more about conservatism, which is, I think, like I'm worried about this problem, that we need to talk more to everybody, but especially young, budding conservatives about what civic virtue means, that it's not just about voting, it's not just about knowing history, it's recognizing that there, you should... It's also about owning the libs, right? I mean, that's what, I think that was what Russell Kirk said, is it, it, it boils down to owning the libs. I'm so happy because that, that is ultimately the antithesis. Instead, 
virtue is about recognizing that we ought to strive for the, the common good. We ought to be humble, um, that we ought to like look out for others, but we need to participate and engage in these activities. What I'm trying to help develop is a next generation of right of center people who know how to do the business of now public service, public governing, who believe in these set of principles, who are willing to give of themselves every once in a while to go work for a state or even you know, a county government or the federal government, that we need to consciously develop people who think in ter- think of citizenship in this way. Yeah, you can be a conservative and go make a billion dollars doing private equity, but maybe there is a citizenship requirement or we should tell them that there is, that you've got to give of yourself and learn this stuff and then go into um, the system and help develop a better set of governing practices and policies and habits and norms and traditions so America can thrive. So we, uh, I don't want to be too critical about people who came before us. I just want to say that I'm mindful about building the pipeline and having a human capital strategy because it's not taking care of itself. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad you're doing that. I sort of was hoping that you'd get into some of that. Um, um, you know, and, and a huge, huge part of the problem is the way the big corporate, big businesses, corporate America has a long and storied history of funding its enemies um, or feeding itself one limit at a time to its enemies. Um, you know, there's a, I'm, I apologize if I'm butchering this. I can fact check it for the solo podcast tomorrow, but um, I believe it's Washington Week in Review, the PBS show. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a long story about why that was created. And I believe it was GM. Who, do, who did the, you know, the, the, the Ralph Nader Unsafe at Any Speed, the Corvair, right? What, what, was that? what was the name of the car? You know what I'm talking about? I don't. I'm so okay. Let's, let's say it was GM. Okay. Yeah. So, they were GM, and I'm just saying it was GM. It might have been Ford, but I think it was GM. Was just taken in the neck in, in, in PR, and in part because Nader was dishonest about a lot of stuff, and um, and activists were eating them. Trial lawyers were eating them alive. The left, the Democrats were eating them alive. And uh, there's a guy who actually wrote a book about his experience, which I read years ago, um, about how he was hired out of like Reader's Digest style conservatism to go work and help with messaging. And he made this case for like pushing back and making the case for the market, making the case for what we're doing, making the case for, you know, the contributions that business and industry provide to this country. And they said, now we're going to go a different way. And they figured if they funded Washington Week in Review on PBS, that would buy the auto industry and this car company all the goodwill it needed from uh, um, uh, from Democrats and from liberals and all this kind of stuff. And it's sort of, you know, it's the Sierra Club model where, you know, you, you pay off greens and diversity consultants and all these kinds of people to seem woke. And you, you know, you change your, um, your, your language about all of these things. The NBA thing now has this, you know, uh, socially, you know, corporate acceptable uh social justice statements that you can wear on your back of the jersey. Um, and there's just this sort of corporate desire to seem like you're on the, the good side of things, which Milton Friedman pushed back on a lot. And I think that's part of the problem. You know, that was one of Irving's big complaints was is that corporations were unwilling to actually defend themselves and defend their contributions to things. And there's, 
And so you leave the education schools, journalism, activist groups uncontested where it really matters. And I think that's sort of one of the big problems that we have is that we just don't fuel institutions. We don't empower institutions to defend themselves properly um, against their critics. But this was a, I can't remember how I got onto this tangent and well, I love starting that. to see a, a, a naked Indian walk through the room um, as they play Doors music. Um, so uh, we should probably, before we finish, we should, you're free to respond to any of that stuff as you like. Um, but uh, um, before we finish, you actually wrote something for this fantastic outlet called The Dispatch um, about the Espinosa, right? That's correct. I, my, my, yes. Um, um, but the religious freedom stuff coming out of the Supreme Court. Why don't you just give us your sense of how all that's going and, and um, is, is David French's theory that we are, the court is struggling to find an equal, uh, a middle way between religious freedom and uh, sort of identity politics stuff. I mean, where, where, where do you, where, where do you take, come down all of it rather than me gild a little again? Well, yeah, I think that uh, from what I've read and heard from him, I think he's right. The way that I would say it is at the same time that the court is, finding new rights or reinterpreting, for example, 1964 Civil Rights Act in a certain way, um, causing concerns on the right. Um, They're simultaneously protecting religious liberty in some pretty powerful ways. And this is generally the second clause of the religious portion of the First Amendment, the free expression. Um, So there were a couple decisions just handed down, like the Little Sisters decision on contraception, um, the Our Lady decision on ministerial exceptions, which were very good. And then there's this Espinoza decision, which essentially, um, I mean, cuts against Blaine amendments, which have, have this nasty anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant history. Yeah, can, can you explain? I mean, I, I know what the Blaine amendments were, but can you just explain to listeners, because it's one of these phrases that no one ever sure. explains what they are? Yeah, there was a time uh, James Blaine was the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, He lived and was sort of at his power in the late 19th century, I believe, even ran for president. Um, Tried to get a constitutional amendment at the federal level to stop funding for religious purposes and for um, sectarian schools, which was code for really Catholic and sort of like an um, uh, anti-immigrant. Basically anti-Irish, right? Yeah. I don't know the nature of that. Yeah, there's an amazing amount of interesting stuff out there about how public schools were in large part, not entirely, but big chunk of it was anti-Irish, anti-Catholic. Totally. It was a way to make the, the kids more unlike their parents. Yeah, what so many people don't recognize is it wasn't until really the middle of the 20th century that the U.S. Supreme Court started disentangling um, uh, uh, baseline Protestantism from public schools. And people were still saying the Lord's Prayer, still reading from the Bible in public schools until the court with the Establishment Clause decided to kind of do away with that. And um, Catholics who were really coming into the country in the later part of the 19th century, early 20th century, uh, saw a bunch of bias in the public schools. And so uh, the Catholic bishops got together in 1884, and I, I think again, 1888, and pretty much told all of their parishes, you got to start your own schools because the public schools are not working for us. And so we went from a couple hundred Catholic schools at the time of the Civil War to they reached their peak, I think, in about 1965 at something like 13,500 Catholic uh, K-12 schools. I mean, just a massive growth. And so there was this movement during the progressive era, Blaine and some others who were trying to get 
um, these immigrant kids outside of their um, parochial uh, schools and into public schools where they could be acculturated, assimilated. Um, and there's a famous Pierce versus Society of Sisters decision on this, but also the Blaine Amendments. Didn't, it didn't work at the federal level, but a bunch of states adopted it, 30-something, uh, depending on how you count it, which the language is different in each of these, but the general thrust is no public money can be used for religious purposes or go to sectarian institutions and sectarian schools. So why this becomes important is there was a U.S. Supreme Court decision, I think in 2002, Zellman, which found that voucher programs do not run afoul of the U.S. Constitution's um, uh, the first provision in the First Amendment related to religion about establishment on a five to four decision. So it is okay for there to be a voucher program in terms of the U.S. Constitution, where the state government provides money to families who then pick a private school. But some states had these Blaine amendments that were an additional hurdle that they had to get over, which the state constitution said, by no means can you, the state government, provide any money to religious institutions, especially religious schools. So a number of states wanted to have voucher scholarship tax credit programs and were not able to do so. And really the question in Espinoza, but even before that, the Trinity Lutheran case, which came down a few years ago, really boils down to this really interesting uh, straightforward question, which is once the government decides to fund a thing outside of the government itself, so as opposed to just the government paying itself to build roads, if it says we want to have a grant program where nonprofits build health clinics or start schools, once the government decides to do that, can a state government say it is open to anybody other than religious organizations? And a number of states have done that because that's what their Blaine amendments told them to do. And in Trinity Luther, in this case, that had to do with uh, playground resurfacing, but now in this Espinoza case, the Supreme Court said, yeah, that does not fly with the, um, uh, the second part of the religious clause about free expression. If you were discriminating based on religion, um, essentially excluding some nonprofit group from taking part in a, a public benefit merely because they are religious, you're discriminating based on religion, therefore it's not not allowable. So now, in this was a Montana case, uh, private schools that are religious can participate, and there are probably going to be three or four or five other states that have wanted to do similar programs that are going to be able to do so now that kind of the Supreme Court said, Blaine amendments are, are on shaky ground, not overturned yet, but get it close. And then this could have implications in other education areas and some other areas. The more the government does through non-governmental bodies, so the more the government provides funds to civil society, these questions are going to come up. Can faith-based groups uh, participate on equal terrain as non-faith-based groups? And for all the criticism of the, the Roberts Court, they seem to be pretty strong on this religious liberty question. So uh, this, is, this was a big one. Um, it went 5-4, but the two other cases I mentioned went 7-2. Uh, both Breyer and Kagan uh, have kind of gone along with the conservatives on some of these. It's Sotomayor and Ginsburg who continue to dissent. But this is an area where, as the court term ends, that people who believe in free expression should be pretty happy. Um, and when you meant, just, just to clarify the really important concepts here, when you said playground resurfacing, you didn't mean like Superman's fortress of solitude emerging from the tundra playgrounds resurfacing from some Stygian subterranean depths. You meant 
like literally resurfacing playgrounds, right? Like literally there was a program in Missouri that if I, I think I have this right, where people realize that you can cut up old tires into little pieces of rubber and those little pieces of rubber can be turned into what serves as a surface of a playground, which is really soft. So kids who fall off the monkey bars don't get hurt. And then this Trinity Lutheran case, the state was making that available to nonprofit groups or others that run playgrounds. And a Lutheran church applied for some of that money saying, hey, we run a playground. We would like our playground to have a nice soft rubber surface. And the state said, yeah, you're religious. We, you're ineligible for this. So the court overturned that in 2017, but limited the um, the ruling. And then this Espinoza case just released last week, expanded it. Um, and it looks like this is going to have some legs. And the question now is just how far is the court willing to say that religious groups can participate in public programs, including using public funds? Yeah, I, 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 it's um, it's a great example. I mean, if you want to give, I mean, like Hugh Hewitt the other day on his radio show was trying to get me to say that Donald Trump is the most um, has been the best president for religious freedom in our lifetimes because of the Espinoza case. I was on like the next morning hmm. and uh, because he appointed Gorsuch and um, Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh and um, and I was happy I'm mean, happy. I was perfectly willing to concede that Trump has done a lot of good things on religious liberty and like I you know Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, you know, uh, to the extent they make decisions that um, I think are justified and within all the right parameters of legal reasoning, uh, he gets some credit for appointing them. But I just, what bothered me about it was this assumption that Donald Trump gets the policy credit for things the Supreme Court does when it does things that he likes. But I very much doubt my friend Hugh Hewitt would say, um, Donald Trump deserves all of the blame for Gorsuch's position on uh, the Civil Rights Act applying to, or Title VII or whatever it was of Title IX, applying to um, the um, to transgenders and, and all of the rest. I mean, I, at some point, there's a decoupling that goes on there. But anyway, my, the point I was going to make was that one of the arguments that you remember this well from 2016 2015 forward was that conservatives have had no successes and that we always lose and that we're, you know, um, that conservatism isn't conserving anything. And I saw somewhere the statistics, like the last 12 religious freedom cases um, have all gone the conservative way, something like that. Um, That's right. This is for, I mean, the court has decided not to go back and look at gun rights cases since Heller they continue to deny cert on this. And there are a bunch of uh, people who are upset about that. Obviously, on the abortion decisions, um, the court isn't doing what a bunch of us on the right would like. But on these religious liberty cases, it is hard to say anything other than, although the court is expanding rights in other areas, it seems to be providing a protection around the conscience of religious people and their organizations. Um, so trying it seems like the court is trying to do these two things at the same time, uh, allow the progressives to... Um, advance their cause of greater rights in a bunch of domains and saying, okay, religious organizations, uh, we know that the um, free exercise clause means something. Yeah. I mean, my only point is that, that when it comes to gun rights, when it comes to religious freedom, you can point to a lot of things that over the last 30 years, conservatives can chalk up in the win column that they've actually helped accomplish. 
And this idea that the country has only gone in one deleterious downward slope on everything that conservatives care about is just not not true. It's a mixed bag. You know, as, as our friend Ramesh Panu said, you know, 10 years ago, uh, over the, or I can't remember when he said, but, you know, he's been saying for a long time that um, over the last 30 years, the, you know, the country has gotten um, more pro-life, uh, more pro-gun, and more pro-gay. Hmm. And uh, if you don't, if you have an issue with gays, maybe you think that's a, this this absolutely terrible thing, and that's a different argument. But two out of three, you know, in terms of conservative agenda items, is not a losing streak. And um, and I just think it's something. It, it's it's sort of it, it's this disconnect, right? Where if Donald Trump can get credit for it, it's great. But otherwise, the Deneen argument kicks in, and the regime is in crisis, and liberalism doesn't work anymore. And I think there's room between those two things, but. Anyway, I mean, just a final note on that. I still, for the life of me, cannot figure out what is in Chief Justice Roberts' mind on a bunch of these. Sometimes he seems so deferential to precedent and then other times no. Sometimes, I mean, he writes these dissents that makes it seem like he is going to be quite conservative. And then other times he uh, is the fifth vote for the progressive bloc. But on these issues of religious freedom, uh, he's been leading the cause. I mean, and Justice Alito often writes these decisions. So uh, I do not know how historians are going to talk about the Roberts era. I mean, it's not necessarily libertarian like Kennedy. Um, it's certainly not law and order like Rehnquist. I just have a hard time describing it. Um, and uh, so it leads every new Supreme Court term for us to say, well, how is all this stuff going to shake out? Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not saying this as a defense or an attack on Roberts. Um, obviously, he's had some decisions lately that I think are deeply problematic from a conservative perspective. But I am very sympathetic to this argument that you hear from people like Eric Erickson and Ross Douthat and, and David French sometimes that part of what Roberts is doing is um, sort of drawing a line around the legitimacy of the Supreme Court and not getting dragged into what Trump has done to the executive branch and the judicial branch. And I think I saw Ross say the other day that if Trump weren't president, he would have ruled differently on some of these cases. Right. Um, again, I don't say that necessarily as a defense of Roberts because that's kind of damning in a way, right? Um, but he, we've known all along he was an institutionalist. He's trying to protect the credibility and legitimacy of the court. And um, so maybe that's part of what's going on. It also, if that's true, and I don't know if that's true, we don't read his mind, but if it is true, it kind of undercuts the sort of the Hugh Hewitt case that um, Donald Trump has been this unalloyed good for the Supreme going by the metric of the Supreme Court, because if he's driving the Supreme Court to counterbalance the Trump administration on a bunch of stuff, um, that's a sign of, 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 for, of unforced errors by the right. But I mean, it's impossible to know right now. And maybe historians will have to figure it out. Yeah. And over the next year or two, I think one of the most interesting debates is going to be the future of what does conservative, what does, what does conservatism mean in terms of um, uh, legal theory? And alluding back to Vermeule, he is pushing a theory that I think is brilliant and interesting and is advancing a line of argument that I hadn't considered, but people criticizing the Federalist Society, like Josh Hawley, saying maybe we need to reconsider how we're vetting judges. And 
like there are some conservatives who like uh, believe in judicial engagement, much more about liberty, and others like Alito who seem to be much more about tradition. This is an area that is ripe for really interesting conversation. Um, and I, I don't know if um, there are lots of ways we can engage in this, but this if this conversation has not been as interesting as it is right now in the 20 years I've been following this. No, I think that's probably right. And that's probably the fairest way to describe what's going on is that it's, there's a lot of ferment. Yes. Um, that's right. Yeah. I know you don't like too much optimism um, on, on this place, but uh, like, although I'm really upset about all this cancel culture stuff, we, sh- I think we're going to look back on this era of like all this ferment, like the stuff that Orrin Cass is doing on some of this capitalism and like um, uh, economic policy stuff is different, but interesting. Some of the stuff on post-liberalism, the stuff on what the future of conservatism in courts looks like. Uh, we got to shake a lot of things out, but now I think is the time to be involved in some of these policy issues and certainly this thinking. So, I mean, you always see that I have a smile on my face and I'm trying to be as optimistic as possible and not too dour, but there's some good things, at least in the um, concepts theorizing of what's happening on the right that I'm excited about. Look, as people who are in this line of work and like these kinds of arguments, I get I get it, right? It's like uh, um, if all of a sudden in professional boxing, they allowed boxers to wear short steel claws on the back of their fists, it would make the sport much more interesting. It would open itself up to a lot more kinds of strategy and analysis. Um, it would attract different audiences and all of the rest. I'm not sure it would be con- it would constitute progress. And uh, as a as a small C conservative, I'm a big believer in when you in the in the Chestertonian sense that when you nail down certain dogma, yeah, like the uh, the apocryphal playground beneath the surface, you don't want to call it back up. That's right. And so, like, it's very easy to see this point when you're arguing about the left. You know, the left, uh, I mean, I mean, the, like the crazy left, right? You know, the, the serious postmodern crazy left, which talks about things like, uh, you know, destigmatizing pedophilia to take an argument, right? So I'm not, I'm not trying to, like, throw 99% of the left into that guilt by association at all, just taking it as an example. I very much like the dogmatic epistemic closure <laughs> that says pedophilia is wrong, we don't need to debate this any longer, right? And I very much like to take it much more, to go full circle on this. I like, particularly on the right, I would rather it be universal, but um, I like dogmatic epistemic closure on the basic principle of the sovereignty of the individual, of individual liberty, of limited government. Um, I think that Fukuyama was essentially right in that regard that we reached the end of history when we figured out the Segalian process of figuring out how to organize societies. And it has room for Denmark and it has room for the United States and it has room for big welfare states and small welfare states. That's all fine. But this basic concept of free societies, limited government, free mar- free-ish markets, the, the decency of, 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 of liberal democratic capitalism, the sort of Michael Novak kind of sense, I would much rather live in a world where that is not debated than where it is debated. Um, and when when you start going back and digging up the good dogma that I thought we had settled, um, particularly on the right, and saying, oh, we're just having a debate, we're just asking questions and all of these kinds of things, um, 
I don't mind it in the classroom in a Socratic sense of sort of testing what you believe and all that kind of stuff when you're teaching people to come to the conclusion that this stuff is good. But as a societal level, I think it's a bad thing. And so uh, I agree. Yes, I find this stuff interesting. The claws on the back of the gloves, fascinating stuff, but I'd rather not have it. I agree with 98% of that. That's probably a good place to end, right? Fair enough. All right, my friend, it was great to have you on. Thank you very much. And we'll we'll get you, you know, as Fukuyama says about, you know, uh, the Hegelian dialectic of the, the reaching the end of history, we're all trying to get to Denmark. Mm-hmm. I don't really, I like Denmark, but whatever, we will get you to the five-timer club on the remnant one of these days. That is the statement. Which is I, a lot like Denmark. That is what I'm going to remember from this interview, your promise, and my dream is complete. <laughs> <laughs> all right man thanks very much for doing this and thanks for indulging my um my my sleep deprived weirdness so it was a treat thank you as always all right uh thanks to andy smart for um indulging me thanks to the listeners in particular for indulging me um i am um pretty uh um what do they call it decompensating um i'm pretty exhausted and Uh, I apologize if at times I ramble too much. That's what I do when I'm too tired or when I'm drunk um, or when I'm, um, you know, uh, full of adrenaline because um, I can't get the seventh head in the um, in the gunny sack when I'm trying to bring the head of Alfredo Garcia. So anyway, um, uh, thanks, everybody, for subscribing. Thanks, everybody, for checking stuff out. I have a big piece that I'm. um, defends the, the, the American founding. I feel like I'm constantly doing that stuff these days, uh, but it's behind um, the, the gate for members of the dispatch community. So um, it'd be great if people could check it out. And by the way, you know, this is an important point. We, I, I bring this up every now and then. I should put it in the G file itself. Um, part of our marketing strategy with this whole thing, part of the business plan is that the people who get what we are and what we're trying to do and like what we're trying to do are our best um, salespeople. And um, if you want to forward newsletters that you got, if you're a paid member, great, go ahead. You know, if you think you, you are the best judge of you know people who will like this kind of stuff, and the same thing goes with the podcast. Um, and uh, if you subscribe... You know, mentioning it on Twitter is great. If you sign up even for the free G file, mentioning it in social media is great. We're really sort of counting on uh, all of you to help us out in all of this. As, as we mentioned in our um, original mission statement, which I confess, I guess I mis- misattributed to Goethe um, in part because I remember the, I re- remembered the line from the movie Almost Famous, but uh, the line is, be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. And our listeners are the mightiest force that we have access to, So, and our readers. So um, if you can help promote this stuff, that's great. And if you can't subscribe um, or become a member, uh, we totally understand these are difficult times, and we still appreciate your support and all the rest. So with that, um, I'm going to sign off now. Um, I'm going to do the solo file thing from here in Fairbanks and maybe I'll even be well rested for it so um, uh, I'll see you next time no you won't this is a podcast
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.